0: And we can dig deep into the Word that God's given us. I'm going to hand over to Rob now and he's going to pray. So I encourage you to bow your heads and pray with him.
1: Well, good morning. For those of you joining us on this live stream, um, even though we can't gather together this morning, let's come together now and pray together as God's people. So wherever you happen to be watching this, be it a tablet or sitting in a chair or in your lounge or whatever, though we're all separated, uh, let's come together now as God's people and pray together to our good and gracious and sovereign God. So let's pray. Father, your word tells us that it was you who created this world. Every plant, every tree, every molecule, every mountain or hill, even down to the tiniest piece of sand that has been made, Lord. It's been made by you. It's been fashioned by you. This planet, this universe, and all of mankind does not exist by chance, luck, or or progress of time. You stand behind All that is, you uphold all that is, you alone give life and breath to everyone. Yet we have failed to recognize this truth. Even worse, we've turned our backs on you. We have rebelled against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our behavior. Just stopping for a second to reflect upon this Sad reality should rightly unnerve us because we deserve to be judged by you, to be separated from you for all eternity. We owed a debt that no one could pay, but you sent your son, Jesus, fully God, fully man. He came and lived as a man so he could die for the sins of man but also as God, as the infinite one. He could bear your wrath. We thank you, Jesus, that by your stripes, we are healed. Lord, your blood has washed away our sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfies Lord, we were once your enemies, but now seated at your table. Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we have so many reasons to praise you and thank you. We praise you for the work that you're doing in this church. We praise you for the ways you're growing your people in this place, for strengthening marriages, for building up fathers to lead in their homes, for enabling us and emboldening us to share the gospel with our neighbors and friends. We have so many reasons to praise you today. We also recognize the many needs in our church. We want to lift up Colin to you. We ask that you would bring healing to his body. We also pray that you'd increase his trust in you during this time. And that you'd give the doctors discernment on how to best care for him. We ask that you would use this event to work in Harriet's life. That she would look to you and put her trust in you. Lord, we pray for Rhonda Rugendyke. That according to the riches of your glory, she'd be strengthened in her inner being. Lord, we also pray for Rob Rich. And Lord, we pray that he would be anchored to your word. Even without Braun around in his life, we ask that he would find joy, lasting joy that only comes from knowing and delighting and being satisfied in you. We pray for all of us in this church. We ask that we'd be able to gather together soon as your people. We trust that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we do pray that you would lift these restrictions, that we'd be able to come together as your people and worship. We pray for this current sermon series, Life Together. Lord, we ask that it wouldn't be just a nice idea that we ponder about or sort of think about it for five minutes and move on. But the truths that we learn, that we study together as your people, sitting under Your Word, would radically shape the culture of this church. Please reform us to Your Word, we ask. Finally, Lord, we pray for Dan as he comes to bring the Word to us. We ask that You would fill him with Your Spirit. We pray for all of us who are listening, that we would take care how we listen, that Your Word would dig deep roots in our hearts, which would be seen in how we live. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles there or a tablet and you're following along, please open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2. Acts Chapter Two.
2: Good morning. If you haven't already, we're in Acts Chapter Two, uh, verse thirty six. Hear now the word of the Lord. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Our second reading today is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. There am I among them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning, everyone. It would be uh, great to say that uh, it's good to see you, but of course uh, we can't say that. Uh, As Sky said earlier on, uh, it's sad that we can't, physically be together as a church this morning, isn't it? Uh, It's different for me as I'm preaching largely to a camera, and it's different for you as you're watching me on a screen. Uh, This is all a bit different. And uh, it's right to acknowledge that there's some sadness and some loss to that. Though I want you to imagine next week, well hopefully next week, when the Premier says, hey, it's, it's okay for us to meet again as a church and uh, we throw open our doors, and you're welcome to come back. But here's the question. Why should you bother? Why bother coming back to physically meet with a church like this one? Because think back to uh, COVID lockdown last year. We were away for you know, a number of months, and some people didn't come back. Uh, not only to this church, but to other churches around the Central Coast as well. In fact, uh, I have a friend from another church, and she was quite surprised by this. She said that uh, she had some friends who had been at church with her for 10 years, 15 years. Uh, they'd been part of Bible study groups. They'd been serving. They'd been very regular at church. And then after the COVID lockdown, they were missing the action. They weren't around anymore so my friend uh, talked to them and, and they said, well, you know, we, we've just discovered that we don't need to be at the church building anymore. We've got our family. And so we do family worship every Sunday together. And that's church for us. So why bother coming back to a church building like this one when you can stay at home and worship with your family? After all, as Andrew just read for us, where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, then there he is in the midst of them. So that can be church, can't it? And that shouldn't just apply to the family. I had a friend uh, back in university whose name was Neil, and uh, Neil and I, we both studied Japanese together. We struck up a good friendship, and one day Neil told me that he was a Christian. And I thought, this is fantastic, wow. And so I asked him, mate, how'd you become a Christian? He told me his story. And I go, great, well, what church are you a part of? And he said, well, I'm not part of any <laughs> church, actually. Uh, I don't really like, you know, the institutional church. Uh, instead, me and uh, a few friends, we meet every few weeks and we share about how we're going and our walk with the Lord and we pray for each other. We're two or more gathered, right? So surely that should be church as well. Why is it that we do all these things that we do on Sunday morning? Yeah, you know, especially when we could just be with our families or we could meet informally with friends. In fact, maybe we've lost the plot. Maybe this stuff that we do on a Sunday morning is actually just missing the heart of what church really is. Right? All this time we spend on preaching and on things like traditions, and on and all the structure and the formality. Maybe we should just chuck all that out and get back to basics. Maybe we should just start house churches instead of what we do here on a Sunday morning. I wonder what you think about all this. Well, more importantly, what does God say about all this? Because believe it or not, he's actually given us a blueprint for what church is supposed to be and and what churches are supposed to do. And this morning, as we continue our Life Together series, uh, we're going to look at three things that mark out a real church. Why would we say that what we do here on a Sunday morning is church, but a family gathering for worship together or a group of Christian friends meeting to pray for each other, or even some, not all, but some house churches, are not, in fact, churches. Doesn't that sound a bit, you know, judgmental? (laughs) A bit divisive, a bit closed-minded? Why would we say a thing like that? Well, because God has actually given in Scripture three very clear things that help us identify what real churches are, and here they are. These three things, the word rightly preached, the sacraments rightly practiced, and church discipline rightly applied. Three things, and they're in order of how controversial they are. (laughs) So it might be a good thing, actually, that I'm there on the TV screen so that I could dodge the tomatoes. Uh, I wouldn't have to dodge the tomatoes, rather. But, uh, look, if you think about these three things, then really for for hundreds of years, thinking Christians have considered these three things to be necessary activities of the church. Uh, This is reflected, I won't take you through all the history, but it's reflected in a number of major writings, it's reflected in in some confessions. Uh, These have really been considered for years, hundreds of years, as essential ingredients for the local church. And now uh, we're going to open the Bible And we're going to see why. But first, how about we pray together and we seek the Lord's help because we do need his help to wrestle through these things together. Let's pray. Lord God, you're the one who speaks through his word. You're the one that we've devoted this time now to to listen to. And so Lord, we pray, please do speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so those three things, preaching, sacraments, and discipline. Let's start with the first one, the word rightly preached. Now, I want you to think about what we're doing right now. We're, of course, listening to a sermon, or rather I'm speaking one and you're listening to it. And uh, I've spent sort of 15, 20 hours preparing this thing this week. That's a fair bit of effort. Uh, and now you're sitting and listening to some dude talk for like 40 minutes. Where in the world do we do that today? <laughs> Where in the world do we stop and just listen to one person talk for the better part of an hour? You know, we don't do that. So Dan, why bother with preaching, with all this effort that goes into it? And it just seems kind of outdated, doesn't it? We should have something more entertaining or something where everyone gets to say their piece, everyone gets to discuss and ask questions and give answers. Why bother with preaching? Well, there's actually a very good reason. It's because God has given the act of preaching as foundational to the church. Preaching shouldn't just be present in the church. By God's word, it actually needs to be primary in the church. Preaching is absolutely central For God's gathered people. And you can actually see this across uh, the history of God's dealing with his people in scripture. So think like right back to Exodus. God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out through the Red Sea. This miraculous redemptive moment. He brings them into the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there at the foot of this mountain, God's people gather they stop, they listen, and Moses declares God's word. See the pattern there? God speaks his word through a person, and His gathered people stop to listen. It's the same thing decades later, after they've been walking through the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion. Uh, God actually says, well, now I, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. Just imagine that. Imagine you've been waiting and waiting for decades perhaps to enter this land that God has promised. And just as it almost comes into sight, God says, stop. This is in Joshua chapter 8. Okay, God says, stop. And he says, take this 30 kilometer detour off the beaten track and stop between two huge cliffs. And this is what God's people do. They stop between these two huge cliffs. Then Joshua stands up, and, and these cliffs form a, a natural amphitheater, better than any sound system could give. And there, Joshua's voice booms between the cliffs, declaring the book of the law. He reads the writings of Moses, and all the people stop and listen as God speaks Through his word. Do you see the pattern there? It's the same pattern we see years later, hundreds of years later, when Ezra gets up to speak to the exiles. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're looking at verse 8. So, here, this is hundreds of years later. God's people have returned from exile in Babylon. And what happens is Ezra stands up on a wooden platform. He's there with the scribes, and everybody looks up to him there on the platform. They all stop what they're doing. And this is what the scriptures tell us that he and the scribes do in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of the Lord, or the law of God rather clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like preaching, doesn't it? <laughs> because here's the pattern. When God's people gather, he speaks through his word as someone reads it out and explains it. That's just preaching. And when that happens, everyone needs to stop and listen because God is speaking. It's just like the other weekend when Sky and I were at the shops. Uh, we'd just come out of a, a movie with Ross and a few other people from church. And uh, as we came out, Ross said to us, Oh, the the premier is going to make a second announcement today. So this was just last Saturday, right? A second announcement. Uh, she's never made a second announcement on the same day, and so uh, I knew it was coming up at two o'clock. And so, as two p.m. hit, I stopped what I was doing. I sat down at a table, like just off the side of of an aisle, a shopping aisle, and I uh, I opened up my phone and I watched ABC on YouTube to see what the second announcement was. Now. Admittedly, I was the only, uh, only person doing this. <laughs> Sky was, was being like a normal person. She just carried on her shopping. But I did notice, just as, as the time went on after 2 o'clock, uh, there were more and more people just stopping. And I noticed them watching the same YouTube stream or scrolling through the ABC uh, News uh, blog. And they were getting these updates that the, uh, the Premier was, was saying. More and more people were starting to do it. And then as we were walking around, we noticed more and more people who were talking about all this stuff. Oh, did you hear what the premier announced? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, why were they stopping to listen? Because the premier has authority, right? Uh, She has authority to put us into lockdown. And here we are. Now, how much more authority does God have over our lives and over our world? And so much in the same way, when God speaks through his preached word, we need to stop and listen to what he says. It's not a time for each of us to say our peace. It's a time just to let him speak. That's why Jesus spent so much time preaching Sermon on the Mount and so on. And it's why after he was resurrected and ascended back to the Father, He sent the Holy Spirit to empower his followers to preach in much the same way that he did and in much the same way that his people across history did. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, come across there with me. Andrew read this earlier. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and preaches, one of Jesus' followers. And this is an incredible moment in the history of redemption, the history of salvation, where God pours out his Holy Spirit on a number of people. Peter here speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit and notice that it's preaching that he commits himself to here. Uh, a summary of, of his whole message is there in verse 36. It says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus Whom you crucified. See, when we're talking about the word rightly preached, that word rightly speaks of the message, right? The message matters. Here, Peter preaches that people are sinful. The very people listening are the ones who have caused Christ to be crucified. And the same is true of us today, if you really think about it. Our sin, our rebellion against God, is what caused Jesus to go to the cross. A payment needed to be made for our sin. The judgment that we incur from God needed to be faced. And that's what Jesus did in our place. That's why Peter says that God has raised him from the dead. He's now the Lord. And now all people have to turn to him in repentance and faith. Right? That's the message. That's the gospel. That's the word rightly preached. But it's not just the message that matters. It's also the medium. Because as Peter stands up here, it's not a discussion, it's a declaration. You have to turn to Christ, he pleads with them. And that day, thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. Imagine being part of that. This is actually the first church. And so don't miss what that means. Preaching is what brings the first church into existence. And as God's people continue to preach, opening God's word and explaining it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church continues to grow. Uh, We've just finished up our time in Acts in the Bible reading plan. Maybe you've noticed that, that the gospel is just totally unhindered, no matter what happens to God's people along the way. When it's declared, the church grows. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, we see that The church keeps gathering on the Lord's Day every single week and devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. They stop and they listen to God speak. Hopefully you get the point. Hopefully you see just how necessary preaching is for Jesus' church. And it wasn't just true for back then. The same is very much true today. Because this is God's pattern. His word is opened and explained, he speaks through it, and his people stop to listen. And that discipline of of stopping to listen is actually needed now more than ever. Because, look, if I'm honest, (laughs) then I, like most people, naturally don't want to sit down and listen to someone talk to me for 40 minutes, right? Maybe you're the same. I actually want to be entertained. So, you know, on my TV remote at home, I've got two buttons down the bottom, One says Netflix, the other says YouTube. And I can hit those anytime I want. And, you know, bam, you've got a a video, you've got a show that will entertain me for 15, 20, 25 minutes. I want to be entertained. I don't want to just sit and listen to someone talk for 40 minutes. But that's actually what I need. I need to develop the discipline of of, uh, absorbing the gravity of God as I shut my mouth and open my ears to let him speak to me. And again, I don't naturally want to listen. I want to speak. I want to to say my piece. I want to tell everyone what I think. But when God speaks, I need to listen. That's a discipline. I need to learn to consider his words before I form my own. And so... Look, praise God that he's organized his church this way, that he's organized the church around the preached word because we need the authoritative preaching of his word every week. Preaching does what no movie, nor slideshow, nor discussion time, nor informal chat could ever do. It sweeps us into the gravity of God's speech as his word takes center stage. And there... The preacher authoritatively lays down the truth of the gospel and all that it means for us today. And friends, only that gospel can give us life. Only that gospel can continue to grow us to become more like Christ. Only that gospel has what we need. And so that's why we need to keep hearing it with our tongues still and our ears open. I know that I need that. And so with that in mind, look, it'd be pretty hard to call any gathering of Christians a church unless the word is preached wouldn't you agree whether it's a family praying together or a group of christians discussing the bible and they're very good things to do they're good things but without preaching so much would be missing on the other hand though wherever there is the word rightly preached in message and medium now wow There we have a church. We have all we need to grow in godliness and in faith. So that's our first marker for a true church or a real church, the word rightly preached. And now I want us to go on and consider the second, the sacraments rightly practiced. Now, when we talk about the sacraments, sometimes they're called ordinances. It's just baptism and communion. And if you've been around church for a little while or maybe you grew up in church, then, uh, you know, maybe you've seen baptisms every so often. Uh, Maybe like at this church, we do communion every week. And so probably, you know kind of what this is on about. You know, baptism symbolizes how we die to sin as someone goes down into the water and then we're raised to new life in Christ. It actually symbolizes the effect of our faith in Christ Jesus. We died a sin, we, raise, we raised a new life, just as he died in our place and then was raised a new life. And then um, whenever we share in communion, we have this symbolism of the bread and the juice, which is his body and his blood given for us, not literally, but symbolically. And so we proclaim his death, we remember his death. If you've been around church for a while, you know that, that this is what baptism and communion are on about. And it can be a really... Uh, deep personal spiritual time can't it when someone's baptized or when we celebrate communion in fact a lot of us when we do communion we shut our eyes because it's it's quite personal deep spiritual time but here's my question what if we're missing something about the significance of the sacraments baptism and communion there might have been something that either you've missed or perhaps just forgotten because it's easily forgotten. Maybe we think we know what these things are all about, but there's actually more. And here's what I think many of us might miss. See, uh, living in the Western world as fairly individualistic people, like I have my life here and you have your life there, we're quite separate. So as individualistic people, we can easily turn baptism and communion into individualistic things it's just me and god it's a personal spiritual moment but actually we might miss that the sacraments are designed to be communal it's me and god and the church for example baptism is about more than just me and god so if you've got acts 2 still open there This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. His preaching brings the church into being, right? But then come to verse 41. Peter's just finished preaching. People have have said that they want to come to faith in Christ. They've been cut to the heart. And notice what happens next, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So just notice the chain of events here. First, Peter preaches the gospel. Second, people receive his word. Right, So they take it to heart, they believe it, they're trusting in Jesus, uh, they turn from their sin. So Peter's preached, people receive the word. Two links in the chain. What about next? Then those who received his word were baptised. There's the third link in the chain. And then finally, those who were baptized were added to the number of the church, about 3,000 of them that day. So one, two, three, four. Four links in the chain. And that's why in verse 42, you get a description of what these baptized believers begin to do as a church, right? They do all the things that a church does. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. Uh, They break bread. There's the Lord's Supper there, communion. So they do all the things the church does. But but what's crucial to understand here is that baptism is that third part in the chain. It comes after faith. So baptism doesn't save us. Faith saves us. We know that. But notice that it it comes before being added to the church. It comes before being considered part of the church. See, baptism doesn't save us But it does signal that we're part of Jesus' church. That's why in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations. And what's the next bit? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Discipleship very quickly leads to baptism, it's how we actually declare that we are part of Jesus' church. And uh, what if many of us, or some of us at least, are, are missing this about baptism's significance? It's not just about me and God. It's about me and God and the church. It's about me actually declaring before God's gathered people, I am trusting in Jesus alone and following him as my Lord. Right, you can't actually baptise yourself. right? You have to have someone else baptise you in front of other people. And so you're declaring that, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. But then there's the other side of that as well. It's the church declaring back to them, we affirm that you're a Christian. We can see that you're a Christian. And therefore, we're considering you part of Jesus' church. It's a bit like perhaps a wedding day. Now, it's a, a really deep personal moment for uh, the groom and the bride on their wedding day, right? It, it ought to be. But it's also more than just a personal moment because that groom and that bride are declaring before their family and friends, we are now married. We're committing our lives to each other. And then at a good wedding ceremony like our own, <laughs> you have that moment where um, the, the person at the front says, hey... And all of you, you people who they've invited here today and that they value, you're committing to support them in their marriage. You're supporting to help them, them to help them stay together, right? So at a wedding ceremony, you have both of those things happening. They don't just elope privately. They declare to everyone we're married and then everyone else sort of affirms, yes, we're considering you married and we're going to do our best to support you so too with baptism. Baptism uh, is a moment where uh, we declare to people that we're a Christian and they declare back to us that they're going to support us. And look, throughout most of church history, this is how baptism has been thought of. It's a way of actually entering the church. Uh, And look, whether that takes place For example, here at this church and then someone is considered part of this church or they're baptized here but then they go on to be part of another church. That's all good, but the scriptures definitely make it clear baptism is a precondition to being considered part of Jesus' local church. And you might say, well, isn't that very exclusive? Doesn't that leave people out and create barriers? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it does but only the sort of barriers that God himself has put up. He's designed it this way because he's designed his church to actually be committed to one another. Not just sort of a de facto relationship, you know, come and go, but like a marriage. There's real commitment, and it's not just me and Jesus, but it's life together. And so we need to know actually who's with us. Who's actually committed? Who am I committing to and who's committed to me? That's where baptism helps. And the same is true of communion. You know, think about this. Many of us close our eyes when we take communion. But in so doing, we might be blinded, in fact, to what we're actually doing. Communion is not just individual. It's not just me remembering Jesus when I take the bread and the juice. And it's not just me proclaiming his death until he comes. It's us together. We are the ones who trust in the one who gave his body and blood for us. It's a way for us to say we are trusting him together. We are still following him together. We are still proclaiming his death together. Right? It's a moment of solidarity. And communion helps us both express that, that we're together in this, and it also helps us physically see who's still trusting Jesus with us. And again, it doesn't make a scrap of sense for someone to do that unless they're actually a Christian, right? And unless they've declared that to the church. This is just for Christians who are actually with us in proclaiming Jesus' death. So, do you see how important how necessary the sacraments are for the church, baptism and communion. On the one hand, they help us see who's actually with us, who's part of this church. And on the other, they help us continually commit ourselves to Jesus, or not only to Jesus, but also to each other. This is crucial for our life together as a church. And just as with preaching It would be very difficult for a group of of Christians who get together to call themselves a church without having these sacraments. Whether it's a family that stays home together on a Sunday morning or an informal gathering, or even some, and, and not all, but some house churches that want to throw off tradition and just sort of do simplicity. If they're throwing off baptism and communion, they're not a church. Hopefully you can see how necessary these things are for church life. And look, if you're feeling left out by that, as I've been talking about how you know baptism is necessary for being part of the church, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you're going well. You know, I haven't been baptized. I I feel really excluded by that. Well, look, what I want you to actually hear is the invitation. God actually gives you an invitation here: come and be baptized. If you're someone who trusts in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and you're following Him as your Lord, then what is keeping you from being baptized? And you might say, well, I've been a Christian so many years, it just feels silly at this point. Well, you know, you'd know, you be surprised how common that is. And I think that's actually more the failing of the Western church than anything else, and actually talking about these things really clearly and making the barrier clear that's there. Um, I think the church has been pretty bad at that over many years. Uh, that's why we're trying to make these things clearer now and hear it as an invitation. Uh, In fact, we've got a couple of people that are really keen to be baptised soon, which is super exciting, and and hopefully once we're all back together, we can organise that soon. Uh, So if you've been thinking about this, or this has put it on the agenda for you, uh, give me a call, or give Rob a call, or give Andrew a call. We'd love to chat that through with you. But in the meantime, we've still got one more mark to look at. The most controversial of the three, church discipline, And it might be hard to wrap your head around what I'm about to say, but again, it's so important. That being said, discipline is a bit of a harsh word, isn't it? I wonder what comes to mind for you as you hear the word discipline. You know, maybe it's like my third grade teacher, Mrs. Fowler. It even just comes through in her name, doesn't it? Mrs. Fowler. And sorry if you're hearing this and your last name's Fowler. I mean, no offence. <laughs> but my third grade teacher, she was just strict as anything and unfair, always got people in trouble for things they shouldn't have gotten in trouble for. Maybe that's what comes to mind when you hear the word discipline. Or maybe it's a really strict parent who focused more on what you couldn't do than what you could do. Or maybe... It's a church, a church where the pastor or the elders or the deacons just controlled everything and you always lived in fear of upsetting them. Well, when we talk about church discipline, these aren't the images that I actually want us to to bring to mind. And I don't think they're the images that the Bible gives us either, images of unfairness or arbitrary strictness. Or just authoritarian control. And in a moment, we'll get to what church discipline really is. But first, just to say that some form of discipline in the church is necessary, just as discipline is necessary in any family, right? Uh, There was one time I was up um, waiting for a soccer game to start. So I was going to play. It was an indoor soccer game. And and what you need to picture is uh, this happened on a on a field that's surrounded by a giant metal cage, okay? So that if you got in like a a bit of an altercation with one of the other players, it could turn into an MMA cage fight. Not really. But um, we're there and we're waiting for our game to start and there's a, a mum there with her young boy. And the boy is holding her hand. Then all of a sudden, he shoves her hand away, pushes open the heavy metal gate onto the field and sprints for the closest goal mouth. Then he starts climbing the netting like he's on a playground. Now, Dad is on the field. They've been watching his game, and he just sort of puts his hands up like this, like, I'm not touching that. And then Mum is there just sort of trying to look away, all embarrassed, like, oh, gee, what am I supposed to do? And uh, the game stops, and everyone's kind of like, give me a break. We just want to finish our game. No one's doing a thing. After about 20 or 30 seconds of mum and dad kind of looking back at each other and no, you do it, no, you do it, dad finally comes and picks up the kid who's wailing and screaming at this point, deposits him back with mum and goes back to finish the game. Everyone breathes a sigh of relief and then I hear the kid now right next to me scream at his mother, I want ice cream. And so she says, okay, Let's go get some. And we might look at that situation and go, gee, what is that kid going to become, right? Some discipline is necessary in any family, both for the good of that kid and the good of the parents, and in this case, the good of the soccer players, the good of the game, right? Now, the same is true in a church because imagine if that situation with that kid was sort of running rough, roughshod over the church. Like imagine people just sinning against each other, gossiping, arguing, excluding each other, and it's never confronted. No one ever says a thing. What an unsafe place to be. And not only for those who are sinned against, but also for the one who's sinning. What an unsafe place them because you know we might look at that kid and go gosh he's going to grow up and be a piece of work but imagine what happens for this person who's getting drawn into to more and more sin and no one's saying anything to them about it and it keeps getting worse and worse and they're more and more unrepentant and their their conscience just gets more and more lacerated they don't realize what they're doing now where are they going I mean, is it towards greater faith in Jesus or away from greater faith in Jesus? Chances are, if that thing keeps continuing, they're actually on the way to hell. They're on the way to denying the faith. And no one's going to say anything to them about it. What an unsafe place for everyone in that case. Some form of discipline is necessary in any family, and that's even more true for the church family, both for the sinner and the sinned against, which, if we're honest... Every single one of us is in both of those categories at different points, right? Because we're all broken people. That's why Jesus assumes that the church will need a way of dealing with sin. And so come with me to Matthew chapter 18. And here we see how Jesus wants us to weave discipline into our life together. He actually gives us clear instructions. And look, just to take the edge off, I reckon 90% of church discipline happens just as we look out for each other in the normal day-to-day of church life and week-to-week of church life. You know, it happens when we open the Bible and we talk about what God's doing in our lives and we're honest about our struggles with each other, whether it's after a meeting here or it's over a coffee or it's in growth group. 90% of the time, that's church discipline. It's actually this proactive, positive, looking out for each other, praying for one another, being honest with one another, That's where most church discipline actually takes place because it keeps us on the path of following and trusting Jesus, right? But then Jesus gives us a plan for how to really deal just with the other 10% when something keeps going beyond that. So we're in Matthew 18, look at verse 15. Jesus says this, "'If your brother sins against you, "'go and tell him his fault between you and him alone.'" If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, the situation here is, as Jesus says, if you're sinned against. But it could also be true if you notice that someone else is caught in sin, right? Even if it doesn't directly affect you. There's there's a principle here. Someone sinned against you or you notice that they're caught in sin. Uh, Either way, notice what Jesus says. Go and talk to them about it. Don't sweep it under the rug. I mean, if I had food caught in my beard somewhere, I would want you to talk to me about it. And notice the goal of this. It's not just to make the other person feel crummy for what they've done. What's Jesus say? If he listens to you, oh, you've gained your brother. See, this is the goal. The goal is to gain a brother or sister. It's to help them Keep being part of the family by faith in Jesus and in following Jesus. It's considering them still a brother or sister in Christ. And look, here's what I've seen over time. I've been in pastoral ministry now pretty much bang on 10 years uh, and have seen a lot at this church, but also things at other churches. And here's what I've seen. Uh, This probably won't happen if sin is allowed to fester in someone's life, right? If no one ever talks about it, sin just tends to grow. It's cancerous. It grows and it gets worse if left in the dark. And just as James says, uh, desire brings forth sin, and sin, when it is full grown, leads to death. Right? There's this progression that if sin is left in the dark, it tends to grow and tends to lead to total destruction. That's why it's so important to practice church discipline by actually going to talk about sin with people even if it's a bit scary and a bit awkward. And notice who's doing it. Take a look there, verse 15. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the elders. It's you. If someone sins against you, or if you notice that someone is caught perhaps in sin, go and tell them their fault. This is a church-wide activity Because it's a church-wide responsibility. We have a responsibility to the Lord for each other. Which is why Jesus continues in verse 16. If this person still doesn't listen after you've gone to talk to them, bring a witness. Bring another member of the family who's noticed these things. And maybe this is where it's helpful to bring an elder into the equation. I mean, we're here to help, uh, to lead by serving. Right, And so we're here to actually try and and help bring out matters of sin and and see people restored. So maybe that witness could be an elder after a couple of conversations. Uh, But then, only if that person still won't listen, do you go to the last resort. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right, tell it to the church because it's family business. Think about it. As I just said, we have a responsibility to one another before the Lord. And church life is about supporting each other to grow in faith and holiness. So if someone is rejecting the faith and refusing to repent of sin... And that sin has just kept growing. And it's now sort of looking like a rejection of the elders and rejection of the rest of the church. It's saying, I don't care if this is harming other people, or I don't care if this is harming the church's witness, or I disagree that it's doing those things. And multiple people have now come, including the elders, and talked to, with this person. And it's been brought to the whole church, and, and they're still not repenting. What then do you do? Does Jesus say, ah, don't worry about it, you've done all you could, just let it go, no big deal? No. After all these attempts to try and restore your brother or sister, he says, well now, don't treat them like one of the family. Treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. That doesn't mean that you treat them meanly. Actually, you still treat them kindly and lovingly as we would love any neighbor. But you treat them essentially as a non-Christian now. Someone who needs the gospel. Someone who needs to be evangelized to. Which implies you keep some sort of relationship, right? But it's a different relationship now. They're not a brother or sister. You hope that they might become one again as a result of this. In fact, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6 that uh, cast these couple of people out because of their sin in the hope that they would come to their senses. But there's a radical change in the relationship here. And I know that this is all very confronting. But imagine if none of this ever happened. Imagine if we couldn't talk honestly about how we're going in the faith and securely and safely about our sin and pray for one another in that relationship. Imagine if when we fell down, We couldn't know if people would have our back or not and help restore us back to faith and holiness. Or imagine if someone's continually harming the church and its witness, we couldn't do anything about it. I tell you, look, I wouldn't come back to a church like that if it's like that. And so praise God that Jesus has designed his church to be like this. In fact, come with me to verse 20. You might recognize these words. But Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And this isn't talking about, well, if you have an informal family time of worship, well, that's church. Or if a few Christian friends get together at a cafe, that's church. It's not what the context of these words are. What's the context of these words? Church discipline. This is talking about church discipline. Jesus says, There I am among you to make sure that my church continues forward in faith and holiness. There I am among you to help you have the hard conversations that you need to have. There I am among you and not just you, the elders, or you, the pastors, but you, the church, to whom I've entrusted this grave responsibility. Yeah, Wow. <laughs> Maybe that's hard to swallow, but I think what's even harder to take is just the gravity of that. This is a responsibility we have to one another. But it's part of life together. It's part of being family. And I want to be part of a family that I know really has my back as I want to grow in faith and in holiness. And so hopefully you can see how central Each of the things that we've talked about today really are the word rightly preached, the sacraments rightly practiced, and even church discipline rightly applied. Without these, you don't have a church. But with these, you do have a church. No matter how small or large, no matter how dingy or dorky, no matter how many programs they have or don't have, If you have these three essential ingredients, you have a church. And God has promised to build his church. In fact, he's promised to build a church much like ours here in Wyoming as we continue to grow in faithfulness in these areas. But here's the thing. It's easy to say, gee, Dan, that's that's really encouraging. And also really thought-provoking. That's really made me think this morning, thank you, that was good. Now, that's great if you say something like that. Thank you. (laughs) But um, it's one thing to say that. It's another to actually put our hands in the middle and say, I'm on board. Here we go. And here's the question. How do we know whose hand is actually in the middle? How do we know who is actually going to uphold the centrality of preaching in this church? And how do we know who is going to say when someone's baptised, brother, sister, I'm committing to walk with you. And when we take communion, hey, I'm proclaiming the Lord's death with all of you. How do we know? And how do we know who's got my back and got your back in matters of sin, both in my life and in the church more broadly? How do we know who's on board with taking that responsibility of church discipline among each other? How do we know? Well, If you haven't thought too much about how to answer that question, can you? Can I ask you to think about that? Can I ask you to to pray deeply about that? And can I ask you particularly to pray for us as elders, as we seek the Lord's guidance in how to make all of these things clearer for us as a church and even formalize them for us as a church? Can you join us in praying about these things? fact let's do that now as we finish our time together let's go before the lord and ask him to guide us lord god we look to you as the only savior only lord only king only judge you are creator and we are creature And so, Lord, we have just stopped to hear you speak to us through your word. Please guide us to consider how to apply these things, both in our lives and in our church more broadly. And please guide us, Lord, to be a church that takes preaching and the sacraments and discipline all the more seriously. Help us, Lord, to know with wisdom how to do that in both a loving and just and truthful way. Would you be the one to guide us, Lord? In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.